All right. Everyone's got their weapons. Go to Matthew. Chapter 16 uh, is where we are at. So we're cruising right through the book. A little over halfway there. Matthew 16. And our text today is going to be verses 13 uh, down to 20. Maybe one of the best little sections of scripture that we have. I, got, I feel like I got, I got lucky with this one. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, we all know why it's called Caesarea. Philippi is what it was always called until the Romans came in and Caesar went in and did his deal over here and then it became Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to him, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you. Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ, which is the weirdest part of it all right? You would think that, that after everything that was just said, there would be this like, go tell everybody what you just heard and what you just confessed, right? All right. Um, we typically see uh, Jesus leading these 12 guys, teaching these 12 guys, guiding these 12 guys into a knowledge of him and what God is doing through him. Right, And in that leading and teaching and guiding, we typically see these 12 dudes asking a lot of questions of Jesus. Um, I mean, he's speaking some like truly perplexing things. A lot of times he's speaking in parables. And I mean, he's revealing um, heavenly realities to fishermen and tax collectors and a bunch of normal dudes. Right. And so like these guys are always we, we see them constantly looking for clarification and interpretation and truth. They question Jesus. They ask a lot of questions of Jesus, but today we have Jesus asking them a couple questions. Um, the first one being, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, Son of Man is a title that we see Jesus using of himself more than any other title that he uses of himself. So what does it mean? Um, well, first and foremost, it just means from man, or of man, or for man, or fully man, um, servant of man, right, is really what it means. So, so um, you guys have all heard of the hypostatic union? This ain't going to cost you anything. This is free. Like, hypostatic union is a big million-dollar word uh, for the reality of Jesus being simultaneously fully man and fully God. Okay. This is a tough con. It's kind of like the Trinity for people like us. Like you can't really completely wrap your head around it and understand it. All we can really do is accept that this is true because our, our Bibles claim this to be true. Like this is what he claimed of himself. And when he uses that title, Son of Man, he's really speaking 
to that human side, that human reality of who he is. Like, yes, I am one of you. I am like you, and I've come to serve you is really what he, what he does when he's, when he's using that. So this, this, this phrase basically speaks to the man side of the hypostatic union. So, so Jesus is asking basically here, verse 13, for the word on the street, right? Like that's what he's doing. He's asking his disciples, like, what's the buzz out there about me? What are they saying about me? Um, what are you hearing from others? And then, of course, in verse 14, we have the response um, uh, to that, which, which says, uh, some say that you're John the Baptist. Others say that you're Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So we see that they, they give an honest answer, but they give one that's very relevant. It makes a lot of sense for the day in which they live and the place in which they live because they dwell in the midst of a people whose lives and thoughts are centered around the Scriptures, which to them is what you and I would call the Old Testament Scriptures, Right? And so the overwhelming interpretations concerning Jesus came down to Old Testament figures that were both familiar and, notice, special. Everyone that they notice here as far as who people think Jesus is was a prominent figure in their scriptures. Figures like Johnny B., right? Who we already, like, we've already talked about John. We remember back in, um, uh, uh, where was it, the very beginning of chapter 14 in Matthew that we went through where he's been beheaded and then Herod freaked out all of a sudden and thought that he was going to be like reincar- that, that he was re- reincarnated into Jesus and like was going to come back and get his revenge through Jesus. He thought that Jesus was Johnny B., quite possibly, right? And so we see that some people uh, believe this. Elijah's another one that's mentioned here um, who did not die but was caught up and thought, expected to come back at some place at some time. Right, And then you got Jeremiah or, or maybe even one of the other prophets. But I want you to notice that every one of these guys that people think Jesus is, is a prophet. All of them. So they were, they were thinking right, the people on the streets, in that they perceived Jesus to be somebody special, somebody big, but they were wrong, and that they're all shooting too low. They're shooting too low. They're not, they're not high enough with, with what they're thinking um, about him. Nonetheless, the bottom line is that there were many different interpretations that were out there floating around concerning who exactly Jesus was. And we, in the world that we live in here today, are facing the exact same reality, even though we are, for the most part, not Jews living in Israel. If you were to go down to the Old Mill District today after church and walk around and interview people with the question, who do you say that Jesus is, I guarantee you, you will get some interesting answers. You will get a ton of answers. Here's a few of the most popular answers that I have encountered in my conversations with non-believers out there. Because I like to ask this question. By the way, this is a, this is a good question to, to get down to. If you're actually able to, if God gives you an opportunity to witness to somebody, this is really what it all comes down to, people. Who do you say that Jesus is? If you just want to cut to it, right? This is some of what I've heard. Most popular first. He was a good person. Like a kind of like a Mother Teresa or like a Gandhi. You know what I mean? Like that, that's basically how people view Christ. Like he, he was a good person. He was a moral man. Another of the most popular is he was a good teacher. 
So a lot of people recognize uh, that he was a really good teacher, right? Like, like a wise man, right? Uh, I've heard Jesus was a self-deceived man. Um, he, he thought uh, uh, much of himself uh, that wasn't true, a mentally disturbed man maybe, even a madman, I've heard. All right? You may hear that he was the first created being. We can hear that from, from some of our Mormon friends, even. So he was not eternal. He was the first created being, which makes him the greatest of that which is created, right? Very wrong answer. Um, I've heard the brother of Satan. You've probably heard that too from another religious organization. Um, I've even heard that he was Satan. There's this thing from two different people. I got into uh, debates one night. They both had grown up in Christianity and then defected from Christianity because of this conspiracy that Jesus and Satan are the same people. It's found in little phrases in our Bibles, like if you go to the, uh, I think it's the psalm, the morning star is re- refers to Satan, and you go to Revelation, the morning star is referred to as Jesus, and so there's this whole conspiracy and rabbit trail that people go down that, oh, I see what's really going on. There are two sides of the same person. It's, just, it's stupid, but you will hear it. You will hear it. And you will even hear today he was a great prophet. Our Muslim friends will assure us of this one. They're convinced of this one. All this to say, we still, to this very day, in various locations around the world, end up with a wide and varied collection of interpretations concerning Jesus. C.S. Lewis famously developed what has become known as the Trillium. And I think some of you have heard of the Trillium. Lord, lunatic, liar argument or options. Um, And it's actually a good one. (laughs) I highly recommend you looking into it because uh, basically, like, everything that anybody believes about Jesus, no matter what that is, um, fits into one of these three categories at the end of the day. That he was actually Lord, who he claimed to be, or that he was a lunatic, he thought he was something he wasn't, or someone he wasn't, or that he was a liar, he knew that he wasn't something that he claimed to be. And so it all kind of breaks down into this, this trillium that C.S. Lewis gave us. And um, it does so due to what Jesus clearly, the reason it fits into the, one of those categories is because of what Jesus clearly in Scripture claimed about himself. Because he did not claim to be a good teacher only, And nothing more. He did not claim to be another prophet only. And nothing more. He did not claim to be a good law-abiding moral crusader. And nothing more. Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be equal with God. He claimed to be eternal in nature, pre-existing with God. He claimed to be the voice of the burning bush. He claimed to be the I am before uh, Abraham was, right? That's Jehovah, by the way, if you didn't know that. Uh, He created to be the, or he claimed to be the one who created all things that exist. And all these things equate to blasphemy. (laughs) This is all what we call blasphemy, and it's why these guys ended up murdering him. Now, Jesus goes from a question that's informative concerning the masses to a question that now puts these guys, the 12, 
on the spot, right? He's now looking to see if they too have bought into the popular narratives of the day, because a lot of times people will, right? Or if they've come to a different conclusion for themselves, even an unpopular one, concerning Christ. And we see this in verse 15, where Jesus says, who do you, so he personalizes this now, who do you say that I am? To this day, this question is by far the most relevant, vital, important, necessary verse that exists in the Bible for the human race. I know that's a big claim. I'm going to make it anyway. This is the most important that we have to answer. Because I promise you that everything in your life now and everything in your eternity comes down to how you answer this one thing. All of it. Everything now and everything to come comes down to how you answer this. Who do you say that he is? What do you do with Jesus is the question. Who is he to you? This is the question of questions. This question from Jesus to his disciples right here was the single most important question that he would ever ask them. And it is still the single most important question we can ask ourselves and others today. This is a good question for others. Because we are not saved... Listen to this. We are not saved based upon whether we believe there is a God or not. I'm going to say that again. We are not saved based on whether we believe there is a God or not. That is a big word, and it is a broad concept. We are saved by what we believe about God. That's what saves us. And if you look at everything that Christ taught throughout the Gospels, you will see this to be true. It's what we actually believe about God. We are saved based upon believing that Jesus is the only way because He is the only begotten of the Father. That's what makes Him the door. That's what makes Him the only access point to the Father. He's one of a kind. There's only one like Him that comes from the one real God, the one true God, right? There is one door, He says in John 10. Um, and in John 6, he says, I'm the only, it, like, it's me. I'm it. I'm it. Right? By the way, this should be our prayer for Israel right now, as we see. I don't care what kind of, like, eschatological, like, category you fit into, which just means, like, end-time category. Um, what we have in large part over there um, in Israel is a nation of people that have been unique and chosen by God out of this world to bring forth his plan and his purposes, but they do not look to Christ as their only hope. We have a bunch of lost people over there right now. There are, there are Jews getting saved. There has been ever since Pentecost, right? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is for the Jew first and then to the Gentile, right? So it's not, it's not like they're fully blind and none of them can get saved or they have another, another way of getting saved. No, they're saved the same way you and I are and people have gotten saved. But in large part, they do not look back at Jesus Christ from Galilee 2,000 years ago and say, you are the Christ. They think he was something else. They think he was a fraud. Therefore, they've cut off themselves from the door, from the access point to God, the only access point to God. So with everything that's going on right now, as horrible as it is, this is an opportunity for you and I to say, show them Christ, Lord. Open their eyes, open their hearts, save them. Bring them to yourself. Not only that, and this is the part where it gets weird, we should be looking at Hamas. 
with the exact same prayer. Open their eyes. Open their hearts. Save them. Christ is the only way. We want people need to see Jesus for who he actually was. Right? And so this delusion is still going on to this day where people think that Jesus, especially with the Jewish people, was something other than who he claimed to be. Right? And so this needs to, this should be a prayer for us today. All right? Um, it's not just what we believe is my point about God. It's, it's what we believe about Jesus, who he was, that matters. It matters, okay? And this is affirmed as Peter answers here, then Jesus responds. Verse 16, Peter replies like, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And so this is really interesting. First of all, you are the Christ, which means the anointed one. You are the eternal one. You are the deliverer. You are the savior. Most importantly, you are the king. You are the Christ. You are the king, right? Well, the king of what? The king of the kingdom of heaven. The king of the kingdom of heaven, which I want you to hold on to that kingdom of heaven phrase because as we get a couple verses down, it's going to tie in here. It's got to mean something, all right? So Peter's like, like you're the king, right? Um, notice also he answers, you're the son of God. So Jesus is like, who do they say that the son of man is? And Peter's like, you're the son of God. So, so here's the other side of the hypostatic union, right? Fully man, fully God, simultaneously, same time. 100% man, 100% God. It's really interesting that, that Peter comes back and take, he takes it up a notch, right, from what Jesus presented himself as to them. So Peter confesses and emphasizes the, the divine side, the divine nature of that hypostatic union here. So, so when Peter says, you are the Christ, he is declaring that Jesus is not just another prophet, like everybody else, like the word on the street, right? But the one of whom all the other prophets pointed forward to. That's what Peter's saying here. He's, he's saying, you are that one, that coming king that all those prophets spoke of, right? Which is a great confession. I mean, this is like awesome, because this is Peter we're talking about here. You know what I'm saying? Like the dude wasn't the sharpest tool in the toolbox. Like, like usually he's like heavy entertainment for us because of the stupidness that comes out of him so often. Uh, but this, this wasn't part of it, right? Like, like, like this is Peter we're talking about who just put his hand up in class and answered out loud. Um, and it usually doesn't go well for him when he does this. Like, but this is the definitive answer that he gives. This is the right answer. And it's not often that, that like Peter gets an A-plus on a test in front of Jesus and the other dudes, but like he does here. He aced this test, and do you know why? Because of what Jesus says next. Verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is why Peter got the answer right. Right here. So, so Peter aces the test and gave the right answer because the revelation of Jesus Christ, as the Christ, as king, had nothing to do with Peter's IQ. Had nothing to do with his IQ, but everything to do with God's impartation of this truth upon Peter. You guys hearing me? In other words, God leaned over and whispered the correct answer into Peter's ear. Better yet, he put the correct answer in Peter's heart for that confession, 
right? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That simply means son of Jonah. Son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, you did not come up with this yourself. Nor did any of your colleagues here that's sitting around you right now listening in, like whisper that to you, right? Like even the smartest one in the class. But my Father who is in heaven gave that answer to you. I don't know about you, but like, oh, how I know this to be true, <laughs> like in my life. I really do. I, I, know that, I know that if God did not install and download the revelation of who Jesus Christ is into my heart, I would not be standing here in front of you today. I would not be saved. My, I, I am not smart enough. <laughs> I am not intellectual enough. I am not logically astute enough, no matter how many sermons I, th- I sit through, to figure out on my own that this Jesus thing is real. Like this is something that is supernaturally imparted to me. I know that the only reason I am a child of God is because God gave me the revelation of his son. He implanted it in my heart. And I believe that for you guys too. Like not, not only did I know that about my own salvation, but I, think I know that about yours as well. Um, do you, like, I can't even tell you how ridiculous it feels to me to even come up here from week to week and get behind the pulpit and preach these things. Like sometimes just purely like on a human level, like on a fleshly level, I'll look at the text. I'll look at these things that we come together from our houses on Sundays and meet around this text that has to do with eternal things. They're things that are spiritually discerned, right? And, and, and sometimes I just, I, I think on a human level, like, what the heck am I doing? Like, the, like, it seems ridiculous even that I would come here and I would sometimes preach my guts out over something that seems so ridiculous. And the only thing that causes me to do it over and over again, week after week, is knowing that this is true that it's not because of what I'm doing here. It's because of what he's doing here through his word to you guys, right? That's why I can get up here and I can fumble and I can bumble around, you know what I mean, and just be stupid sometimes and not even communicate well sometimes, right? And know that it's not going to be for nothing. It's because it's God that's giving the increase in doing the work, not me, right? This is kind of what we're talking about. I mean, I mean, like, like, think about preaching for a second. Like, it seems like such a futile and impossible task. Even evangelizing, even sharing the gospel with a non-believer. It seems like such a futile and impossible task <clears throat> that God would make his appeal through people like you and me of the highest things that can be known. That's just, that's just incredible. This is the game changer that God imparts the knowledge of his son to sinners like you and I. It's him choosing. It's going to get crazy. You ready? Put on your seatbelts. It's him choosing sinners. It's him determining. It's him revealing. It's him directing his spirit to move upon those who are being saved through the gospel of Christ. It's him. Um, It's funny that we really like to think that our our idea of free will is more beautiful than something like this. It's not. This is more beautiful. That God would have anything to do with people like you and I. That he would impose 
truth and salvation upon people who otherwise don't want it or won't have it is beautiful. It's beautiful. Um, If God did not impart this revelation, this truth about Christ upon Peter, guess what? Peter would not have figured it out. He would not have had this confession. That's basically what this text is revealing to us. Um, If you want a real cause to worship, God, in sincerity, in awe, in reverence, in spirit, and in truth, breathe this in for a moment. God gave you the revelation of Jesus Christ that you might be saved. It's an incredible thing. That the God of the universe has gifted us with the knowledge of him is incredible. And, a, and with that, a desire for him. Because I remember how, how, how deep and wide my desire was for God before I got saved. It wasn't. <laughs> like like I, I was a rebel going in the opposite direction, and that was all completely stupid to me. There was nothing there that I wanted. So he gives, he gives us that desire as well. Um, it means that I do not give that to you as I stand up here and do what I do. I'm just an instrument, just like you and I might pick up a pen or a pencil to write something. That pen or that pencil didn't do it, didn't write it. I'm just an instrument. Um, I did not give the gospel to you, nor did another preacher when you heard it, nor did you give it to yourself, right? In other words, you didn't deduce any of this. If you have a confession about Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God, you did not deduce that on your own, You did not figure that out on your own. The Father has revealed that to you. The Father has revealed that to you. Um, I, don't how, I don't know how the knowledge of this can be anything other than, like, completely glorious. Like, this is where worship comes, like, in, in huge amounts for me, is when I think of just the bigness of God, the sovereignty of God, the initiation of God upon sinners. Like, this is where, like, worship really starts. I, I don't know how to respond any other way. Then to go, like, like, what is this? You know what I mean? Like, like I don't know how we can get mad or offended at it. And, and, and the truth is, when I read this, like, I'm so happy for Peter here. I don't, I don't know what you guys think. But, like, when I read this, like, my first, my first reaction is, like, this is so cool for Peter. Like, he says, blessed are you. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. This is a dude that's going to go on to deny Christ. We all remember that, right? This confession comes first. And this response from Christ, blessed are you. Due to, this, due to knowing what you know, Jesus proclaims to him first. And I, I, I'm so happy for him. And it's the same thing for you and I today. I don't know what your story is. I don't know when God decided to get a hold of you or have a, a special meeting with you. But when he did, if you have that confession about Christ, like, like blessed are you. Because God gave that to you. Like you were in the crosshairs of the God of the universe. You. That's insane to me to think about, and Peter was too. So like the bottom line of what Jesus is revealing to us here is that our salvation does not come through self-revelation. It does not come through, or I'm sorry, it comes through God-given revelation that's directed specifically upon those whom he is saving. If we want to see an empty heaven, we can remove this action of God. We can say he doesn't do this, because then no hands go up, Right? And this is not something that Jesus was ever obscure about, guys. You did not choose me, but I chose you, Jesus says, right? Many are called, but few are chosen, Jesus says. I know we don't like the implications of that. I know that's where it hits us hard. 
But like Jesus was never obscure about the reality that God initiates what we have in our confession and knowledge of Christ, right? Okay, 18 and 19. Um, Let's read them both. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So we're going to go from controversial to more controversial now. Um, I, I was looking at this text, and I was so excited. You know, it's Peter's confession. It's the good confession. And then I forgot that, like, this last couple lines are in there. Like, they're, they're a great point of controversy in the church. Like, I, like I, I think we even have, like, a few different denominations that have ran off different directions and fragmented due to verses like this in our Bible, right? And I, I was kind of like, gosh, can I maybe, like, skip this part, you know? We're going to hit it. First of all, on this rock, what rock is the question, right? Um, We all know as good Protestants that it can't be Peter uh, because that would be too Catholic, right? That's basically what the Catholic Church has has done with this. But I am going to say, yes, it is Peter. It is Peter that he's talking to and that he's talking about here. Um, If you notice, the way the sentence is recorded, it's super odd. Did you notice? And I tell you, you are Peter. Like it just said like, oh, thanks for clearing that up. I I wouldn't have known if you wouldn't have added that I am Peter, right? Like what's up with that weird sentence? It's odd because the name for Peter in the Greek is Petros. Do you know what Petros means? A rock. It means a rock. So, the sentence reads like this, knowing that. I tell you, you are a rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. That's what that weird sentence sounded like to Peter's ears. Okay? Does that make more sense? Now, I do want us to note that Peter means a rock. He does not mean the rock. He does not mean the rock. This is where we might differ from our Catholic friends a little bit on this interpretation. I, almost wa- I also want to say that I do not believe Jesus is saying this to Peter because Peter's awesome, right? We've already kind of established that previously. He's saying this to Peter because his confession is true. His confession is right. In other words, this confession, in that sense, is the rock of the church. This confession which also means that Jesus, the one whom that confession is based upon, is the rock, capital R, of the church. So I'm going to go, yes, yes, and yes, when we're talking about the rock that he's building his church on. It is Peter. It is the confession of Peter. But most of all, it is the one whom the confession is about. Yes, yes, and yes. All right? Um, So no, it's not the way the Catholic Church takes it. We don't believe that Peter was a super soldier, like that he was just this this one lone ranger dude that was head and shoulders above everybody else in the church. And then when he went to die, he passed that baton to another dude, and that's where we get the succession of popes that we have. We do not uh, believe this, uh, but that his confession was built upon Christ, the one who owns the chief shepherd of the church, okay? So Peter was not the pillar of the church. He was a pillar of the church. After all, let's not forget that there were 11 other dudes that were standing there that day as this conversation is going on, right? In fact, 
If you think about it, Peter's even the guy that the Apostle Paul, who referred to himself as one who was born out of due time, the Apostle Paul would have to go to Jerusalem and rebuke this dude a couple times, right? Um, so we know that the only um, solitary authority did not stand with Peter. Like, Peter was a human being, too, who was under submission of everybody else that God had also put around him, okay? A um, little different than what we see going on in the Catholic Church and how uh, that man is able to function. Next, what we have here is the first place in Scripture where we see the word church, or ecclesia, is the Greek word, ecclesia. And what's cool is that it's from the mouth of Jesus himself. Like, he's the one who, who says this word. Now, these guys probably didn't think much about it when he said it, because ecclesia was a commonly used Greek word. It simply means assembly, or called out. Like, it's, it's a group of people coming together. So even in that day, it was, it was a secular word that was being used by governments. If the government would have a, a meeting that convened with government officials, it was an ecclesia. If some kind of other council was coming together to have a council, it was called an ecclesia. So, like, this didn't look wor- weird uh, to them, really, when they, when they heard it. But to us, it's like it, like it kind of matters. Like, to us, it looks different when we see Jesus say it because we know that he's talking about his bride-to-be, his eternal bride-to-be, right? Which, by the way, is the reason the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Because the blood of Christ and that which he is building is stronger than the forces of hell. Okay? The ecclesia is stronger, the ecclesia of Christ, than the ecclesia of the government or of the Jewish council or anything else that comes together and convenes. Right? The life that Jesus gives us is stronger than the power of death. Stronger than the power of death. This ought to be such an encouraging statement us like to meditate on like the gates of hell will not prevail and it's easy for us guys to look around this world and look at our headlines and look at the stuff that's dropping and coming on the scene it just seems like we are a train going downhill out of control know that the gates of hell will not prevail against that which christ is doing know that take comfort in that sleep well right What this means is that because we are a people through faith in Christ that have been built upon the rock of Christ, we are the only people who will will survive the destruction of the universe. That's heavy to think about, and in a way it's sad, but um, like I get chills thinking about it. Let me say it again. Because we are a people through faith in Christ that have been built upon the rock of Christ, we are the only people who will survive the destruction of the universe. Jesus is saying here, the gates of hell will not prevail over that which is mine, over those who belong to me, based upon their confession of me. Right? That's why this matters so much. It means that those who belong to Jesus are a privileged people in every sense of the word. I have no problem with knowing that. I have no problem with knowing that I'm privileged. You know what I mean? I know that's a bad thing to admit to these days. Like, it's just true, right? Because just as like privilege in our day is known as something that we did not do ourselves, but something that we were gifted and born into, so too is our privilege in Christ with the Father. We're born into it. We're gifted. We, have been pri- we are a privileged people in every sense. 
that hell will not prevail over the church means that the church is his most prized possession, which means that the church for us ought to be our most prized possession. We'll come back to that slightly at the end. Finally, we have keys to the kingdom, maybe the most controversial like concept in, in, uh, and I'm not going to get crazy on this. Um, I really don't think it's as complicated as we make it. So just follow me quickly. Um, first off, what does it mean? Well, I would ask like, first off, what do keys do, right? Like what do keys do? Keys are used for locking and they're used for unlocking. We'll just keep it super simple. That's how I need it. So, um, in this, in this case of what Jesus is talking about, this has to do with something very valuable because it has something to do that's di- like with what's directly tied to the kingdom of heaven, of God's kingdom, right? So it's valuable. Now, for some reason, it's been really easy for people to go like all demon hunter with this when we hear bound and loosed and like we all, we all of a sudden just start thinking of demons and casting out demons and, and stuff. And we, we simply don't have to. Just because this language is here, we don't have to. Um, if, if we just stay within the context that has already been established here, the conversation that's already been happening here, uh, this is, in my opinion, you go home and study it because it's a big study, something that has to do directly with confession. That which we're already talking about. The confession of man about who they say Jesus is. So to keep it simple, and I believe most accurate given the context, the church bases its reception or rejection upon a right confession. We always have, and we always will. There is a word, which we don't hear too much in Protestant circles anymore, which I think is directly connected to this, uh, more common back in Lutheran circles in the day, even Catholic circles, but it's a great one. That word is absolution. Have you ever heard that word before? Absolution, which means to absolve. Of what? So, you know, you get, you get a picture of maybe like the, the funny-looking little booths where someone would go into the booth to confess and the father's on the other side and they would confess their sins and then it would be followed up by or punctuated with your sins are forgiven you. That's absolution. It's a confirmation with authority that you have been freed from your sins. That you have been freed from those things that maybe you think you haven't really been freed from. It's something outside of you, someone outside of you that agrees, that unlocks, that unbinds, guaranteeing that what Christ did is enough. Your sins are forgiven you. Some of you need to hear that today. I need to hear it regularly. I love the dudes in my life that know about absolution. Because there's times that people that know me well know exactly where I'm at, and they'll just sit down and look at me and say, your sins are forgiven you. Because I'm the last guy that's able to tell that to myself half the time. There's power in that, people. For someone outside of you, based upon your confession of who Christ is and what he's done, your sins are forgiven you. It's finished. It's finished. It's over. There's no more fight. You are no longer bound. You are no longer bound. You have been freed. You have been loosed. Praise God. Praise God, right? That's what absolution does. Think about how many times in the Gospels we see Jesus go off somewhere, heal somebody physically, and then how does he finish that interaction? Your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven you, right? With authority, he proclaims this. And how could he do this? Like, who is he that he could make such a statement that only God could make? This was, 
the questions that the Pharisees had. This is why they cringed when they would hear him say this. And then they would end up murdering him eventually because he would say things like this, right? After all, this guy was nothing more than a Galilean carpenter, right? He was a nobody. But he was absolving people and he was able to absolve people based on the authority the Father had given him because of what he knew about the people that were coming to him. That's how he was able to do that. Now, what if this was what Jesus was giving to Peter that day? These kind of keys of absolution based on confession, given the context. Right? What if it has nothing to do with demons? And yes, these guys would run around like with a full overdose of the Holy Spirit and do some kooky stuff. But I don't think that has any place here in what we're looking at today. This is about confession. Reception or rejection into the church, right? Um, So let me put it this way. Every time that I preach the gospel, people will accept it or reject it. Every time I proclaim Christ, proclaim a real, true gospel, people will simultaneously, sitting in the same room, accept it or reject it. Those who receive it are being loosened. They're being untied, right? Not only here, but there, in heaven, untied. Simultaneously, those who reject it are solidifying being bound. Not only here, but also there. I do believe that this is what we're talking about with the keys of the kingdom that were handed to these guys that day. And then, of course, verse 20, don't tell anybody. Like, what the heck is that, right? Like, don't, like, it doesn't even say, like, don't tell anybody about this. It says he, he strictly told them. Like, this was serious. Like, don't say anything about this, right? Which is really weird unless we understand that everything that God was doing through the life of Christ was down to the detail, due to prophecy, due to foretelling. Just his timing in his plan was perfect, right? And uh, I'm going to leave that there. You can go have fun with that one. So to conclude on this text, let me just, a couple statements. I want you to notice the obvious progression here. Confession leading to salvation. Salvation leading to the church. Okay? They are not separate. They are not bifurcated. They are not exclusive from one to the other. They are one. We live in this culture in the United States today, this church culture, where it's all about me and Jesus, right? It's just me and him, and I can do whatever the heck I want within that relationship because I've been set free. A lot of times people won't say it, but set free from the church even. Don't get me wrong. Some of the worst experiences I've had in my life that scarred me came from Christians in the church. I get why we run from it. I get why we walk away. But if you look at the progression of what Christ has set forth here, it's got to be really hard. If he loves the church so much, it's got to be impossible for us to have a serious problem with it. We got we to love it too. Church does not happen out on a lake with your fishing pole. You may have real good fellowship with God out there, but that's not the church. This is the church. The church gathers together, assembles together. It is the ecclesia. It is the called out people of God together worshiping God because of what Christ has done. That's serious stuff. And we're privileged 
to be a part of it, as imperfect as it is, as many blemishes and spots and warts as it has, we are the people who he's redeeming. And so let's act like it when we come together. All right. Lord God, thank you so much for this text. Even though it's difficult, I pray that you would um, make something of it. Um, I pray, I I guess more than anything else, that uh, we would each be certain of how we answer that question that your son asked here. Who do you say that I am? I, I pray that we would be settled, each of us, with that today before we walk out those doors. I pray that if someone's not settled with it, that your spirit right now will go to work and do its thing. That your revelation would overwhelm the doubts that that person may have. And we thank you. We, we acknowledge that you are the only reason that we have any part of you. That, it, that you have done that, that you have initiated it, that you have gifted every bit of what we need to know you to us. And so we thank you, Lord, and we, and we worship in this knowledge. And it's in your son's name that we are saved and that we pray. Amen.